Christian on May 20th, 2014. And uh, here are a list of things that happened on that day. I had a blueberry Danish for breakfast. I walked from my apartment to the Madison Street Clinic. I received free healthcare from Apple Health on that day. I sat with my best friend in the waiting room while Let It Go by Adina Menzel played over the intercom. I took three Vicodin. I laughed really, really hard in the clinic. I cried really, really hard in the clinic. I had a small glass of orange juice in the waiting room afterwards, and I hugged the nurse who was there watching to make sure I didn't get sick. I ate an enchilada at the Mexican restaurant across the street. I took a three hour long nap, and then I went to rehearsal that night. And here are a list of things that didn't happen. I didn't feel sad. I didn't feel angry. I didn't feel hurt. I didn't feel abandoned. I didn't tell the person who got me pregnant. And I didn't look back. My name is Miki Sotos. I found out I was pregnant when I was 27 years old, six days after my mother had died in my arms um, after battling cancer for a year. Um, I was doing speed on a regular basis, not taking care of myself, um, and probably like two inches from my face being in the gutter. Um, my abortion was the first event I had been able to control in my life for a long time, um, and the catalyst to get my life together. Um, I went by myself that day. I never looked back, and I never regretted it. Then um, should I say, shout your abortion? <laughs> shout your abortion. Is the church getting used to the horror of abortion? The deluded pride of shouting your abortion. There um, are dozens of those online. Dozens of them. You should sit, in a sense, and you should smile and relax because because your mother was pro-life. And uh, there was another little person who will, I was thinking of that first video, another little person who will never know the delight of what a strawberry Danish even tastes like. Romans 12, 9 to 11 will be the theme text. Romans 12, 9 to 11. Let love be genuine. So it's not just enough to... What the world needs now is love, sweet love. This is the word, genuine. And then there are these these two commands relating to two different uh, realities. There's abhor what is evil. We'll talk about that. Hold fast. If you have the old King James, it has the word cleave to what is good. So there's evil, there's good, and there's an appropriate response for godly people to each of those things. 
Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. I'm going to talk about that phrase. There's a kind of laziness that can creep into our minds. Fervent in spirit is the opposite of slothful in zeal. You can see what he's doing. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Let's pray. Help us as we look at this subject this morning to focus on what is the issue for the church and what your call is to to me and to everyone in this room this morning because it isn't just about abortion and people who have abortions. It's about Christian people and what can happen in their minds with the passing of time to sinful activities that they are commanded by their risen Lord to abhor. And we may have our own repenting that we need to do in that regard. So enlighten, guide, direct, correct, and accomplish your will. Oh, how we love your word. Something something solid on which to construct a worldview based on truth that is absolute because it comes from the creator of all truth and all things. Guide and direct us, I pray. Amen. There's something I wanted you to see in those two video clips. These aren't demonic people. I chose those two clips because they contained uh, no profanity. That was not an easy accomplishment. The people you heard from, especially in the first clip, seemed, uh, albeit a little broken perhaps by circumstances, they seemed fairly normal in temperament. You can pull me down in volume, please. And they weren't ashamed of what they had done. That's what gives their words so much appeal in today's battle for moral ground. They consider their abortions the way many church people have come to consider abortion. These people sound tolerant. They aren't forcing uh, anyone else to practice abortion. They're not trying to force their view on you. They seem generous. They seem reasonable. They seem relatively measured in their words. If normal people can have abortions and talk openly about them, it seems we should at least be willing to listen as openly as they are to speak. There's, there's something almost unfair feeling in dogmatically opposing someone who's speaking her heart on a difficult subject. Who are we to judge? What kind of redneck would denounce these personal testimonies? So here we sit. Christians need to be able to frame these kind of issues biblically. And, and the, way I, the way I do this is as follows. Forget that the issue is abortion. 
consider those two people who practice something, anything, that we would consider sinful, wicked, unrighteous. There are only two possible reactions open to the person who has no intention of repenting of sin. There are only two things you can do if you don't want to repent. The first is you can simply deny the sin. Excuses are offered. Blame is shifted. God's moral absolutes get sort of bent and relativized just a little bit. This happens all the time. And the, and the goal is to remove personal guilt. Not, I'm not talking now about guilt feelings. Please understand. I'm talking about actual guilt, accountability, before a holy God who judges. So I'm not talking about uh, erasing a sense of shame or remorse or, you know, I feel like... I, I don't mean that. That's guilt feelings. You can have guilt feelings even if you aren't guilty sometimes. What I'm talking about is actual guilt... So the goal is to remove guilt. And the way you do it is you deny sin. It takes some effort, but eventually the volume of conscience can be turned down. It is simply untrue, by the way. I hear Christians say this all the time. It is simply untrue that every woman who has had an abortion lives life filled with intense regret and shame for the rest of her days. Regret and shame are not impossible to overcome. I said there were two possible options for those who refuse to repent of sin. The first is denial, denial of guilt. But that's not the preferred course of action in dodging repentance. There's a second course of action that is much more effective. It's not the denial of sin. It is actual pride in sin. This is preferred because while, while denying Sin can make future sins easier for me. Pride in sin actually promotes the same sinful activity in others. No one wants to be a lonely sinner. Shout out your abortion. Don't pretend it's not there. Don't pretend you didn't do it. That's denial. Shout it out. Pride. And so we find these kinds of fulfilled prophecies in the scriptural account of the anatomy of wickedness. Look at Romans 1, 28 to 32. Romans 1, 28 to 32. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. To do those things which are not proper. Proper, by the way, is not talking about things that society deems proper. We're not talking about things that are socially acceptable as opposed to things that are socially unacceptable. That proper, like using the right fork for your dessert. When, when Paul talks about things that are not proper, he's talking about things that our creator deems improper. Okay? So they're really improper. Not just socially impolite. To do things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, 
malice there, gossips, slanderers, haters of God. And then, look, insolent. These words, arrogant, boastful, boastful, not denial of sin, pride in sin. Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, listen, hearty approval. Sinners always approve. Give hearty approval, verse 32. Sinners always boast. If you're not going to repent of sin, if you're not going to deny that it exists, boast, hearty approval to other people who are involved in the same sin. This is, this is the most common, most advanced, darkest form of self-protection. I need others' joint involvement to justify my wickedness, and nothing will encourage sin in others more than my own pride and my guilt. He's doing it. He's not ashamed of it. She's doing it. She's not ashamed of it. Lots of people in the church do this, Pastor Don. Yeah. Here's the biblical bottom line. It's the whole sermon in a nutshell. Everything rests down on this foundation. A wicked act doesn't become righteous just because our culture no longer feels shame for it. A wicked act doesn't become righteous just because our culture no longer feels shame for it. Our opening text from Romans 12 has a haunting relevance to the shout your abortion phenomena. Christian is called upon to have a response to those who would proudly present wickedness as righteous. That's going to happen. Paul recognizes it. And so he writes to Christians and he says, you you have a response when people do this. And you must respond this way when people are proud of their sin as an encouragement to other people to participate in it, there's something the church collectively must do. United, consistently, passionately, fervently, there's a response. And that's what I'm preaching on this morning. I don't need to prove to you that abortion is a sin. There's another problem. And it's one that creeps up in the church. We are commanded... Not to tolerate wickedness. Not to ignore wickedness. That's why we're looking at Romans 12, 9 to 11. Especially verses 9 and then verse 11. The words words used at the end of verse 9 are such vigorous words. They, They seem to call out for something really strong, really active. What what, what can Paul mean? Abhor what is evil. Cleave to what is good. Those aren't ordinary words, church. Abhor. Cling. Hold fast. 
Those are not everyday ordinary words. They're, they're worlds apart from, I don't prefer. They're miles from dislike. They express something far more passionate, far more gutsy. These are not yawn words. These are not boring words. These words are, are highly reactionary. They're, they're words that say, get up. Think strongly about this. Get passionate. Inwardly scream when something is evil. These words say, is this evil? Are you sure? Is it, is it really evil? Think about this, because if it is evil, you, Christians, should absolutely abhor it. You should be teaching your kids to abhor it. I am really frightened the way parents consistently teach Christian kids never to use the word hate. I fully understand you don't hate people. You never say that. I get that. You don't use hate to say, I hate broccoli. It's understandable, but you still shouldn't. You don't use that word. It doesn't fit there. But I'm concerned with this blanket, this blanket forbidding of an upcoming generation to abhor anything that we're making them easy targets for sin. Your little boy or girl who's seven, eight, nine should hate being disobedient to parents. Your little boy or girl, six, seven, and eight, should hate when the name of Jesus is blasphemed. And if you're teaching them never to be reactionary against anything, you're making it easy, easy. For the devil to trip them up just with a, a lazy indifference. Well, who, who are we to judge? You know, everybody has a right to their own opinion. And that's true. And you have the right to abhor what is evil. What's more, what's more, you have a biblical command to hate what is evil. The same goes for the good. Real evil should make your skin crawl and your blood boil. If it is evil, you should feel the evil of it with intensity. Don't abhor people, but you must abhor evil. The same goes for the good. We're not called just to admire the good or agree with the good or listen to the good as somebody teaches or preaches in this morally dark world, the good, is, the good is going to get very rare, church, in the next 50 years. It's precious beyond all telling. The good must be treasured. You and I are to cling, the Bible says, to the good. We are to cling to the good the way you cling to your spouse after a month of separation. Hold on. The idea here is... The good is not only precious, the good quickly slips away. It evaporates. It diminishes. Don't you let go of it. If it's good, Paul says, don't let anybody change your mind about it. Do you see it? 
cling. Dig in to the good. Shout your praise when there is something truly good. Prize it more than gold or diamonds. Sink your teeth into the rich taste of what is good and righteous. So both these words, they kind of reveal the whole personality, don't they? Abhor. Not just vote against it. Abhor what is evil. Cling to the good. What you abhor, what you cling to, reveals the state of your heart. Christians must be strongly against things in this fallen world. You have to choose a side. You can't cling to both the good and the evil. There isn't to be space for every moral option in a Christian mind. It It is incredibly wicked to treat evil and good alike. It is incredibly wicked to treat evil and good alike. Evil and good each call for a distinctly passionate response. It is not generous or compassionate or in any way right to merely tolerate an evil that we are called to abhor. That doesn't make you a generous person. It makes you a wicked person. And it's not righteous or wholly to just mildly appreciate the good we are called to praise and prize and fight for and cling to. Well, I'm not that kind of person, Pastor Don. I don't get engaged in these kinds of things. I'm just not an excitable person. I let other people abhor and protest evil. I let other people risk life and limb and money to protect the good. It's just not my temperament. And our text today says that we must never use that kind of reasoning to justify apathy. Don't water down the clear commands of this passage of Scripture with your emotional temperament. Rather... Shape your response and your moral metal by the clear teaching of the word of God. Let me suggest to you, God himself is absolutely passionate about what is good and what is evil. Read the Psalms. See the things God says he hates. Just go through an underline sometime. That's right. When God hates something, he talks about it. When God hates something... He says he hates it. When God hates something, he expresses his hatred. And he's morally perfect. And he wants us to be like himself. Don't panic when I say point number one. We're well into this. I want to go quickly through this. We already know how wicked abortion is. We studied it before in our church. I preach on it kind of annually. Not rigidly to that schedule, but pretty much. Every year I've been here, 34 years, I always raise it and talk about it. 
Here's what I think most of us know about abortion. A, abortion is evil. Remember, abhor what is evil. Abortion is evil because what is happening in the womb of a pregnant woman is a person-forming work of God. Psalm 139, 13. For you, this is speaking of God, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I have no use for people who want to try and prove when a fetus is viable and when it isn't viable. What we know for sure is what's going on in the womb is a person-forming work of God. And by the way, okay, this is a comma, this is not the message. By the way, if you're talking with someone who is passionately pro-choice, you need to know something. It is a, it's an 80s argument to try and prove that what is in the womb of the mother is a real person. By and large... Almost all intelligent pro-choice arguments recognize that what is in the womb is a person. You don't have to prove that anymore. Fortunately, medical science has done that. It's an old argument. They don't deny it. What what pro-choice people say is the rights of the mother person trump the rights of the baby person. But they don't deny that it's a person very much anymore. 90% of pro-choice arguments, recognize that it's a person in there. So that gets you no ground, arguing when it's viable on its own, when the heart beats, when it has fingerprints, when the blood type is manifested and different from that of the mother. That's old. It's old. What they argue is the mother person has rights that the baby person doesn't have. That's the argument. And that's the road they go down. Abortion is evil because what is happening in the womb of a pregnant woman is a person-forming work of God. No earthly mother assembles the parts of that other little body. It's not the mother's body. It's God's work. B, abortion is evil because the taking of non-criminal life is the prerogative of God alone. Job Chapter 1, verse 21, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. These are Job's words when he learns that his ten children have been killed. He's certainly not happy with the way they died, but his words recognize that only God has the right to end the life of persons he has created. See, abortion is evil because babies torn apart in the womb bear the image of God. It's significant the way John the Baptist is described as being filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. Luke 1.15 For he shall be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. This means that all human life inside and outside the womb has a dignity that nothing else in all of creation does. D, abortion is evil because God has revealed in his word that it is his special desire and interest to give special care for the weak and defenseless in this world. Isaiah 25, 4. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress. A shelter from the storm, a shade from the heat, 
from the breath of the, ruth, of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall. Lastly, E, abortion is evil because it's a sign of unbelief in the power and promise of God to think that killing an unborn baby is the only way God can make life livable, make a livable and hopeful future for either the child or the mother. This is the lie of that whole every child a wanted child argument. It's an insane argument. What shall we do with unwanted two-year-olds? What shall we do with unwanted 90-year-olds? It's, it's stunning to me that an argument like every child, a wanted child, is used to justify killing babies when if you said we take all the puppies that are found in the Humane Society and we kill them because nobody wants them. People, do you imagine the response? Just imagine. We've been here before, people. What, what, should, what should Hitler do with unwanted Jews? It's the same logic. We've gone down this road. When one person gets to decide who's wanted and who isn't, this is not a safe place to live anymore. I saw comma again, okay? On a news clip, I never watched the show, but I saw on a news clip, I forget the point that was being made, and they had a clip from that show, um, Whoopi Goldberg, all those gals sit around, The View, The View, The View, The View, and they had a a right-wing, I won't say who, uh, a politician on there, and they were discussing this shout your abortion thing, and this, uh, this person was a man, he was commenting on the tragedy of the abortion issue, and, and Whoopi Goldberg said, excuse me, sir, but that, that decision is not up to you. That is not your call. That call should only be made by the mother. So I'm watching this, and he said nothing. Now, I, I get it, the cameras are on, the lights are on, it's easy to, you know, be kind of an armchair critic. But I'm thinking, why, why wouldn't you say to Whoopi Goldberg, why wouldn't you say, seriously? So, so only the mother has a right to speak about this because she's the one involved. And she would say, yes. And I would say, do you mean to tell me that, that the, only, the only people who should be against the slave trade are blacks? Because, after all, they're the ones involved, right? Do you mean to say the only people who should be abhorred at the Holocaust are Jewish people? Nobody else, because we weren't involved, right? It's not our say, not our call. 
Or if you're walking down the street and you see an older woman being beaten and and robbed by a couple of thugs, do I stand on this side of the street and say, well, it's not my wallet, it's not my situation, what right do I have to impose my view there? Let's let each plantation owner decide who should have slaves and who shouldn't. I mean, the the whole of our our moral sanity on this planet is based on the fact that anybody has the right to speak out when someone is abused and mistreated and hurt. Those kind of ridiculous arguments. So, In thinking through what should be in our hearts this Sunday, I don't think we need a list of more reasons why abortion is evil. I don't think many of us, maybe some, but I don't think many of us doubt that abortion is evil. And if you still doubt that abortion is evil, I doubt that I could give you enough reasons to change your mind. I think what we need is quite different. I think our need is to keep our spiritual fervor in the cause of life. I think our need is to abhor what is evil, abhor what is evil, cleave to what is good. So our need is not to grow weary and not to grow bored with the whole issue of the preciousness of life in the womb and the defense of these silent, helpless victims. And there is a real battle for our hearts here. Now I'm not talking about those ladies in the interviews. I'm talking about we who sit in this room. I'm talking about us. I want to wind up reading you something I read before in this church. I've just never found anything that speaks to the issue I'm speaking to better than this. So you've heard this quote before years ago. I want to read to you something in a William Bennett article on the practice of partial birth abortions. Of course, Bennett is writing from, and by the way, this is a pretty, um, I think most of the kids are out at Children's Church. I'm not sure if I had, uh, please, I'm not trying to embarrass you in any way, shape, or form. I'm just giving you the right to be, you know, your own uh, parent. If I had maybe someone five or six, I maybe wouldn't want them hearing this whole quote, but you can decide. I'm just giving that heads up. I think people appreciate that. Bennett, of course, writes from an American perspective. I get that. But we Canadians can't easily separate ourselves from the kind of massive gravitational pull of this world's moral climate. And Bennett recalls, looking back, that in the U.S., both the Senate and the House of Representatives passed a bill banning this hideous procedure unless the life of the mother was at stake. Quite a while back, April 10, 1996, then-President Clinton vetoed that bill banning partial birth abortions, and so it didn't pass in the Senate. And after that, then-President Bush had twice vetoed attempts by Congress to pass legislation making partial birth abortions easier to obtain. We should probably thank God for that. 
I want you to think about these deeply shocking words as you remember those ladies, those nice, sane, soft-spoken ladies in those Shout Your Abortion videos that we saw. I've read these words over and over, but I want to carve them again into your mind. I want you to listen to this account from Brenda Schaefer, registered nurse with 15 years of experience. She was passionately pro-choice and was assigned a position in an abortion clinic and didn't see any problem with it. And her experience of a partial birth abortion, which is as the baby is actually coming out of the womb, okay, it is killed. Here are her own words. I just want to read them to you. You're all okay with this, right? Okay. She writes, I stood at the doctor's side and watched him perform a partial birth abortion on a woman who was six months pregnant. The baby's heartbeat was clearly visible on the ultrasound screen. The doctor delivered the baby's body and arms. Everything but the little boy's head. Baby's body was moving. Little fingers were clasping together. He was kicking his feet. Doctor took a pair of scissors and inserted them into the back of the baby's head. The baby's arms jerked out in a flinch. The doctor then slowly opened up the scissors. Then he stuck a high-powered suction tube into the hole and sucked out the baby's brains. Now the baby was completely limp. I never went back to that clinic. But I'm still haunted by the face of that little boy. One of the most perfect, little, angelic faces I've ever seen. Now, this account is what prompted William Bennett to say the following. When he read this quote from this nurse about partial birth abortions, because it relates to what I'm talking about, not losing fervor, abhorring what is evil. Please let these words register. Bennett writes, referring to what I just read to you, the Congress's failure to override then-President Clinton's veto on partial birth abortion legislation is illustrative of a culture of indifference. When it comes to abortion, there may be some very rare, difficult moral cases, but surely this is an easy one. The presidential sanctioning of a procedure that is, for all intents and purposes, plain infanticide. What was most striking to me was the lack of virtually any public response. Now, it is true that most people don't know about the partial birth abortion procedure and that pro-abortionist camp spreads misinformation. But still, we cannot escape the fact that we had something of a national issue over infanticide. And infanticide won because of a then-popular president's veto and that very little was heard from those Americans who did follow the debate. 
and that the Republican presidential and vice presidential candidates and many congressional candidates said little or nothing about the issue during the presidential campaigns. Americans looked at the issue of infanticide and said yes to it. I'm sure most of us would be horrified at that description of partial birth abortion. And that's not what this teaching is about. We don't need more reasons why abortion is wrong. We all know pro-choice is a polite way of saying we want the choice to take another person's life. And we all know such a choice is immoral and irrational in any sane world. That's not the problem. There's another danger to face. I think we are slowly getting used to abortion. We don't like it. But we're learning to live with it. Like you can start to find your way around in a dark room after you've been in it for a little while. You ever had that happen? You first turn the lights out. We just came back from a little trip. You turn the lights out and you don't know where all the furniture is in a hotel room. And you're walking and stubbing your toe and walking into things. But you lie in bed for a little while and you open your eyes and you can make out things that you couldn't see before. What's happening? Well, you just get used to it. This matters because this is always, always the cooling effect that comes with the passing of time. The same thing is quickly happening in the church regarding same-sex marriage, transgenderism, and a host of other issues. That's what this sermon is about. That's where Paul's words to the church in Romans 12.11 come into play. And I want to wrap up. Romans 12.11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. So point number two is. Do not be slothful in zeal. Literally not lazy in your earnestness. Did you know you can get lazy in earnestness? Uh, We know you can get lazy in work. But Paul isn't talking about that. He's talking about a different kind of laziness. One that's just as deadly. The RSV says, never flag in zeal. The NIV says, never be lacking in zeal. So this is Paul's rebuke to passivity, to apathy, to indifference, to people who are ceasing to really abhor what is evil. They don't like it, but they don't hate it anymore. It doesn't keep them up at night. They're getting used to it. Paul says, that's lazy when you're following Jesus. And this is the important point. Paul assumes that if you see this kind of cultural yawn growing in your heart, you can do something about it. That's why he addresses these commands to your will. He's saying, stop being lazy in your earnestness. Don't let this continue. Change this attitude. If you can't change the circumstances, at least change your indifference. Teach your children to abhor what is evil. Spiritual engagement and passion dies like a marriage dies. How does it happen that two people who who can't live one more day apart get to the place where they can't stand one more day together? 
Well, let me tell you for sure. People don't just wake up one morning after the honeymoon shocked to discover that, surprise, surprise, it's Thursday and we hate each other. No. No. Couples drift apart by not maintaining expressions, actions of love, patience, forgiveness, apologies, dates, celebrations. Spiritual passion cools the way a bowl of soup cools, just from sitting. Don't let the culture's indifference or the culture's pride in their sin, don't don't let that take any more ground in your mind. Stay morally awake. Care about the things others are careless about. Don't just sit in front of the TV or in front of the computer or at the desk at the office and lose yourself in another world. Fight the fight of faith. Indifference is sacrilege against the great purposes of God in this world. Be fervent in spirit. Third point, the last thing. So the first command is a warning to stop something. Don't be lazy in your earnestness. The second is to start something. Be fervent in spirit. That word for fervent is zionotes. It means boiling. Great word. Boiling. Be fervent. Possess a boiling spirit about certain things. It doesn't mean reckless. Doesn't mean irrational. But... Paul is saying we have to be very careful as Christians that we keep our minds renewed, 12, 1 and 2, not conformed or numbed by the indifference of this world to the cause of life. You have to have passion. Be fervent. Fervent in spirit. Care a lot. If it's evil, abhor it. Despise it. If it's good, sell everything you have to hold on to it. Cling to it. Prize it. Don't be lazy about this. Keep your fervor hot, boiling. You you can't just live the Christian life from some distant list of rules in a book. You have to have passion. You must do everything in your power to stay passionate about Christ's kingdom. You must fight against all the encroachments of apathy and indifference. You must never get bored with God's agenda. Wake yourself up when you come into church. Smack yourself on the head a couple times. We're coming into the presence of our creator. He's here with us. He cares about what we're studying. And here's the thing. Abhor what is evil. Don't you dare just tolerate it. Cling to what is good. If you stay fervent, boiling in spirit, you won't be an irrational maniac. God will give you more excitement, fill your life with more significance than a thousand artificial stimulants and toys and distractions. This is the battle we all face, church. We want our minds renewed, alive, 
abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good, resisting apathy and laziness, boiling with a passion for God while we live in a world that wants to make all of our minds alike. A world that wants to make all of our minds black and white, the same. Don't be conformed to this world. You ever notice how Paul, it's, it's striking to me, when he talks about the worldly mind, he talks about conform. All the same. Black and white. Same box. Robots. When he talks about the Holy Spirit, he doesn't talk about conforming to the Holy Spirit. He talks about being transformed. See the difference? Those are your options, people. Those are your options. You can live in a world that just wants to, to turn all your brains into the same thing. Black and white. Or you can stay passionate, alert to the word and spirit of God, and have your mind transformed into something hot and colorful and life-giving. While we wait for Jesus to come back, never give up, never give in, care, keep caring, never stop caring until Jesus comes again and brings his reward with him. And everyone said, let's pray.